Late 1800s, it was the Industrial Revolution, the height of it. The average American worked 10 to 12 hours a day, six or seven days a week. And um, many of those workers were children aged five to six. 80% of the U.S. population were the working poor, working six to seven days a week, 12 hours a day in the factories. The kids um, would crawl through the machines because they were the only ones that would fit. Oftentimes they would lose fingers, hands, limbs. Uh, When somebody was injured on the job, the employer would fire them and cut off their pay, and they'd be left to go fix their, you know, lost arm on their own. They'd lose their job. Women uh, earned one-third to one-half of what men made. Kids made even less than that. We think our jobs are rough. Just a few generations ago, it was a lot, a lot worse. So in the 1800s, people were kind of fed up with these uh, conditions at work, and they formed labor unions to work together to try to fight against their employers. The employers didn't care about the well-being of the employees because what they cared about was a profit, and when they didn't have to pay the employees very much, they got more of a profit. So the employees became fed up with it. September 5th, 1882, they rioted. 10,000 workers took off work unpaid and marched in New York City to protest. Twelve years later, Labor Day became an official holiday. That's why many got off work last Monday. Job conditions for us are nothing like they used to be. And because of all of those protests and riots where people died in the 1800s, the government stepped in and said, you know what, we've got to have some regulations for how we treat people in the workplace. We've got to have some rules. We've got to have some safety um, Susan, you know, working safety at Boeing, a few generations ago, you would not have had a job in safety. That was not a position. People didn't care about safety on the workforce. A lot's changed the workforce. A few years ago, a Gallup State of the Workplace report from 2016 found that 55 to 85 percent of us see work as something to be endured rather than enjoyed. We spend a lot of our lives enduring work. Drew Carey said, oh, you hate your job? Why didn't you say so? There's a support group for that. It's called Everybody, and they meet at the bar. (laughs) Sometimes the best part of my job is that the chair swivels. We get so stuck in the routine of work, and just can't stand it. It's a little disheartening when your coworkers get paid more than you, and you still have to show them how to send an email. We work all day. We spend... 90,000 hours of our lives working, 10 to 15 years straight. We work all day. It's routine. It gets old. It's full of stress. It's full of deadlines. It's full of annoying people. It's full of bosses who are mean and hateful. It's full of all of these stresses in life. So we work all day, and we come home to a drink or some Netflix, and we try to find this perfect work-life balance. And We kind of had this idea that work is kind of where all the stress happens and the rest of life is where your meaning and fulfillment happens. That's where the relationships are and the kids and all that stuff. But if we're not happy at work, it trickles into everything else, doesn't it? If we're not happy at work, we typically feel it in the rest of our lives. We're not happy in the rest of our lives. But without work, We can't be happy because work is what pays the bills. Work is what puts food on the table. So what does it mean to be happy with our jobs? 
couple weeks ago, we talked about happiness being something that's way deeper than a feeling or an emotion, that it involves fulfillment and meaning and this, this whole array of emotions, really good, happy, fun, joyful emotions, and also really sad, angry, depressing emotions, that happiness is something very deeper than just an emotion. Aristotle, who lived uh, 4th century B.C. before Jesus, wrote a lot about happiness. And he talked about happiness not as a feeling or an emotion, but happiness is like a uh, um, kind of a fulfilling life that comes out of our character and our virtue and how we live our lives. It's only a kind of a more of a recent idea that happiness has become this elated feeling of joy that we go after. The Bible does say something about happiness on the job, and it's, it's not encouraging. <laughs> it's really, really depressing. Ecclesiastes, smoke, nothing but smoke. There is nothing to anything. It's all smoke. That word in Hebrew for smoke is a uh, mist or a vapor or a breath. Some translations of the Bible will say all is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The Hebrew word doesn't necessarily mean meaningless. It means temporary. It's a wisp of smoke. It's here one moment, and then it disappears just a few seconds later. He talks about our work, what we do for a living. It's a wisp of smoke and our accomplishes in life. The teacher of Ecclesiastes says it's a wisp of smoke. It's here and gone. He talks about our wealth, what we have. It's a wisp of smoke. Talks about the good times in life, the happy moments and the hard moments, all of it. It's a wisp of smoke. It's here one moment and then it's gone. What's the point of it all? That's my sermon. We'll see you next time. What do we do? What's there to show for a lifetime of work, a lifetime of working your fingers to the bone? So, what's the path to happiness? Buddha, who also lived a few hundred years before Jesus, said there is no path to happiness. Happiness is the path. Fulfillment, a meaningful life, is not at the end of the road after we have achieved all these things and after we've met our goals. Buddha uh, says, no, that whole path all along the way, that was where happiness is. Happiness isn't about getting to a goal and meeting it, and then you're happy. Tell that to the Seahawks who are playing today. Guys, it's not about winning at the end. It's just about having fun during the process. I think that's how I see a lot of life. When this happens, I'll finally be able to relax and be happy. When I accomplish this, when I get these deadlines done, then I'll be able to relax and finally be happy. Socrates also lived around the same time as Buddha, 450 B.C. said, the secret of happiness is not found in seeking more, but in developing the capacity to enjoy less. That is a hard one for us, especially in our, our Western world. We put so much value on achieving and success and accomplishing and ha- philosophy of happiness that Socrates suggests is maybe why um, our country is considered one of the most depressed and anxious countries in the world, despite our wealth and our access to health care and entertainment and food and clean water and shelter, we are still seen as one of the most depressed and anxious groups of people because we keep trying to get more. 
We want to keep seeking more. And every time we get more, every time we get another text message or another Facebook or Instagram like, the endorphins and the dopamine receptors in our brain go off, which are the reward system, and it makes us feel good. You guys ever have that feeling you get a vibration in your pocket and there is no text on your phone? Our bodies, our brains have been wired to want that next jolt of dopamine. And every time we accomplish something, we get something positive, we do something positive, we cross something on the list, it kind of jolts that little dopamine receptors. It's a good thing for us. Kylie gives me a hard time at the store because I'm always antsy to leave. I just want to get it done so we can cross it off the list and go on and get to the next place as if going from Home Depot to Target is going to make me so much happier and less stressed. Oh, you got to go. We got to get things done. She says I'm going to make a really great grandpa. Come on, we got to get things done. I'm going to go start the car. Got to get it going. We just want to get to the next thing. Then we'll be happier. Then we'll be less stressed. 1985, Jim Carrey had a dream of making $10 million. So he wrote a check for himself for acting services rendered for $10 million. Ten years later, in 1995, he got a call for a, a job on a new movie that was coming out called Dumb and Dumber. He got paid for that movie initially around $7 million, not to mention the millions and millions he's gotten as, uh, after that. 2014, he was asked to give a commencement speech to a group of graduates that were about to head into their careers. And he said, I wish people could realize all their dreams of wealth and fame so they could see that it's not where you'll find your sense of completion, of fulfillment, of happiness. I wish all of you could just have all of the success and wealth right now. Because then you would see that is not where your fulfillment will come from. So where does our fulfillment, our sense of meaning, our sense of happiness come from? Henry Nguyen, who is a spiritual philosopher, he was a Catholic priest. He also specialized in psychology. He said, we often live as if our happiness depended on having, but I don't know anyone who is really happy because of what he or she has. True joy, happiness, and inner peace come from giving of ourselves to others. A happy life is a life for others. That truth, however, is usually discovered when we are confronted with our brokenness. Maybe that's why in in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed, which also can be translated as happy, happy are the poor in spirit, people whose spirit has been broken. Because that's where you find fullness of life. Happy are the meek, the humble. They will inherit the earth. Happy are the peacemakers. They will inherit the kingdom of heaven something about brokenness that reminds us of where fulfillment really lies. And Jesus Christ, he was the one that was said to bring salvation and wholeness and peace to the whole world. And he was born to a guy named Joseph who was a poor carpenter. Joseph taught Jesus his job. Jesus grew up as a poor carpenter. That was his job. That was his role, his vocation. Jesus was born to his mother, Mary, who was a teenager. 
who had no job. When Jesus called the first people to follow him, he called people who had jobs of a poor fisherman. He called somebody who had the job, the vocation of a tax collector who was considered a traitor to his own people. Pretty crappy job. Paul, who was responsible for spreading much of Christianity in the early church, his job before he became a follower of Jesus was a persecutor and torturer of Christians. What a job. Perhaps is it possible that your true identity, your true vacation, who you are, your deepest core, has nothing to do with your job, with the title that you've been given, what it says on your business card. Who I am at my core, it's not tied to my job as a pastor, as a preacher. Matthew 20, Jesus is following uh, the, the most important in the kingdom of God. Who will become uh, the highest status? Who will get the promotion in the kingdom of God? And Jesus says in Matthew 20, he got them together to settle things down. He said, you've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, how quickly a little power goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for the many who are held hostage. It is what Henry Nguyen has found, that it is the people who give their lives away are the ones who find and experience life to the fullest. Jesus modeled that in his life to serve others, to open yourself up to others, to help others, to take an interest in others outside of ourselves. It is in those moments where we find true fulfillment and meaning and happiness in life. Not when we close ourselves off, not when we try to get to the top, the ladder. Gosh, Dale Carnegie wrote about that and how to win friends and influence people in the 30s. You want to get ahead in life? Do you want to get ahead in your job? To help the people around you get ahead. That's how you get ahead. That's how you find life and meaning and fulfillment. Dale Carnegie said, everybody in the world is seeking happiness. There is one sure way to find it. That is by controlling your thoughts. Happiness doesn't depend on outward conditions. It depends on inner conditions. We talked about that some couple weeks ago and how to do that. How to become aware of our thoughts, our negative thoughts so we don't become identified with them. Dale Carnegie started out as a door-to-door salesman selling soap for Arm & Hammer. And then he saved up enough money to move to New York and he went to a school of acting and he failed out of that school. He was awful. Within that, he found a passion for hearing uh, speeches, public speaking. He was broke and he was homeless he found a YMCA to stay at, and he said, I will teach some classes on public speaking if you give me 80% of the profits. They said, okay, and uh, that's where his success happened. He found his vocation, his gift. Parker Palmer says, vocation, kind of the, the thing that you were meant to do, vocation, not necessarily a job, 
But it says it does not come from willfulness. It comes from listening. That insight is hidden in the word vocation itself, which is rooted in the Latin for voice. So vocation does not mean a goal that I pursue. It means a calling that I hear. I must listen for the truths and values at the heart of my own identity. Your vocation is what makes you uniquely you. Maybe it is a vocation. It is a unique gift of um, walking through others through traumatic experiences. Maybe you have a unique vocation, gift, listening to others. Maybe you have a unique gift, a vocation, connecting with kids. Maybe you have a unique vocation of creativity, art, creating beauty. What is that thing in you? It is not connected to your job. Sometimes you can do that, and it is tied to your title, but it's not who you are at your core. Who you are at your core, your vocation, what you do, is what John of the Cross, 1542, 1560, says, my sole occupation is love. As a follower of Christ, as holding and carrying the divine spark of life within us, our sole occupation is love. It does not matter what your title is or what your job is, because you can carry out your vocation of love, no matter what you're doing. Who are the people around you in your work life, at home? You can carry out that vocation of love where you can put others first, where we can serve instead of always trying to get ahead and achieve. When you connect with love in you, you are connecting to your purpose, the reason you are here, Your relationship with love, your relationship with God is not one where uh, God is out here and when I pray, that's when I connect with God. I used to only start my prayers with, God, forgive me for my sins because I thought if, if I didn't start with that, even if I didn't know what my sins were, then God would not hear anything that I said. And it is only in those moments where I'd pray, that's when I'd actually connect with God. I don't believe that anymore, that that's how a relationship with God works. I grew up being taught that Christianity is all about having a relationship with God. So we compare our relationships to God with our relationships to other people. Our relationships to other people are conditional and they're fickle and they're insecure. And I'm wondering how I come across to you or what you really think of me. And my relationship with God, is it the same way? So I want us to maybe reframe what relationship with God, with love, means. God is not out there. And when you do something spiritual or holy like church or prayer, that's when you connect with God. God is within you, a part of you. You are always, always, always connected to love, to God, rooted and grounded in love. Am I always aware of that? No. That's when you see me really pissy and annoyed and angry, not nice. Because I've, I've forgot, been distracted by my fears and insecurities and all these problems 
But when we come back, that God is in me, is a part of me, is within me. That root of love is already there and always there. Wake up to that realization and that truth. And then no matter what your job is, no matter what your title is, you can carry out your vocation of love, of offering wholeness and healing and peace to the people and situations around you, bringing people up around you rather than taking them down. Wake up to God in me and say, God, I already know that you are here with me in this moment. And help me have some space and separation to know how to deal with this person. Give me the eyes to see of who needs encouragement right now, who needs a kind word right now, who needs some support right now. Because you are already in me ready to just explode out and do that. So help me know where to direct it. It's not when you get home and then you go to your room and pray and kneel down and then you're connected. No, it is constant constant. We're just not always aware of it. Whatever you are doing, wherever you are, whatever your job is, your true job is to love. I want to show you a video of a guy who figured that out. For most people, being a bus driver is a job, a chore, Kylie, you a way to make a living. Computer? But not for Thanks. one North Texas man. He's on a mission to inspire all of his young students. CBS's Steve Hartman shares his story. You can see why someone might hate being a school bus driver. The early hours, when the weather sours, the abundance of responsibility combined with the absence of eyes in the back of your head. Y'all have a good day! Nevertheless, Curtis cool. Jenkins loves delivering these little ones to Lake Highlands Elementary in Dallas, Texas. Yes. Emily Grunninger is the principal. He goes way beyond the outline responsibilities and duties of a bus driver. I mean, that bus is like a family. These are my children. These are my community. I love them all. To establish community, what's your job, man? He starts by giving everyone responsibility. This is one of the police officers. It's an elaborate flowchart. She's the administrative assistant to she's the president. Administrative assistant. To yeah. The president. Yeah. Everyone working together to build a yellow bus utopia. And we're gonna care about each other, and we're gonna love everybody, right? I put time, effort, love, care, understanding, understanding each and every one of those kids. Omar. To show his love and understanding, hey, Chief. Curtis gives presents throughout the year. How many you say you like baseball? Each gift personally selected with that child in mind. Hey. He gave this girl a t-shirt. Her first book. With a picture from a book she made. I'm hoping this t-shirt inspire her to keep on writing books. Over the years, he has bought these kids bikes, backpacks, handed out cards on birthdays, and even turkeys at Thanksgiving. He has spent thousands out of his own pocket. And yet, if you ask the kids what they like most about Curtis, the gifts don't even come up. He really cares about us, is really kind, and he helps anyone in need. Ethan Engel is a fifth grader. It means a lot to you. Yeah. He says the bus ride is often the best part of his day. My mom got divorced when I was only four. I'll see you tomorrow. He's the father that I always wanted. In some ways, I just, I wish my dad could have been like that. We make the mistake sometimes of thinking certain jobs are more important than others. I know. But Curtis Jenkins made his job important. Right, bye -bye. And in doing so, even created his own salary. Bye -bye. That's the paycheck right there. If I can get that, 
You can keep the money. <laughs> Steve Hartman on the road in Dallas. Your sole occupation, your vocation, what you're meant to do is love. The teacher of Ecclesiastes, he does have an encouraging word somewhere in that book that he wrote. And I love the message translation of this. And I want this to be our prayer as we close before we take communion. Seize life. Because it's, it's just a wisp of smoke. It's here and then it's gone. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Dress festively every morning. Don't skimp on colors and scarves. Relish life with the spouse you love each and every day of your precarious life. Each day is God's gift and it's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Make the most of each one. So whatever turns up, grab it and do it heartily. This is your last and only chance at it. For there is neither work to do nor thoughts to think in the company of the dead where you are most certainly headed. <laughs> Amen. It's, oh, it's a wisp. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's smoke. It's here. And then it's gone. Just like our emotions. Feelings. They're here a moment and it changes the next. Find what's important in our life. And Christ teaches us that what is important in our life is weirdly, oddly, ironically giving our life away, opening up our life to others, our love to others. And what is so cool about this act of communion or Eucharist is that when Jesus was With his friends the night before he died, he tried to communicate this idea. And he took the Passover meal and he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Because in breaking of, of his body, the destruction of his body, the brokenness of his body is where we found life. And when he poured out the cup of wine, so this is my love poured out for you as his blood is spilt. Somehow in the brokenness is life and love. So we have an opportunity to receive the offering. Everyone is welcome to the table to receive a piece of Christ's brokenness. And as we receive his brokenness, we experience and receive life. And it is when we are able to give up our own lives to others is when we experience and receive life. So come up and eat the bread with gusto. <laughs>